0: Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege we now have of getting into your word and seeing what you have for us. I ask that you'd open our hearts, open our minds, help us to hear, help us to understand, and above all, Lord, help us to obey. We ask this in your name. Amen. Maybe you have heard the phrase, there is none so blind as those who will not see. There's none so blind as those who will not see. If you've uh, ever watched a really old TV show about a prison camp uh, in Germany called Hogan's Heroes, um, then, uh, yes, some people have, obviously. You maybe remember Sergeant Schultz. And Sergeant Schultz is a great example of those There's none so blind as those who will not see. All kinds of stuff happened under under his nose and on his watch. Why? Because he closed his eyes and plugged his ear. He didn't want to see it. He didn't want to hear it. He knew that he had a pretty good thing going here with the the people from the allies that were in prison, and he didn't want to mess that up, and so he never saw anything, even though it took place right there. The false teachers in Colossae were just like that. Uh, You could present them with the truth, you could show them all the reasons that Jesus Christ is God and fully man, and they rejected it. I mean, just absolutely rejected it. They did not want to know the truth about who Jesus was and who Jesus is. Their response to the gospel, that Jesus was fully God, fully man, was to reject it completely. They believe that, and and they would say that to believe that you're saved by grace through faith in Jesus is utter foolishness. That's what they believed. And as we can kind of lay it out a little bit at a time, what it is that they believe, and this is what they would say to people who would say, you know, you accept Jesus Christ and and, and you um, are saved, you're born again, your sins are forgiven. And, And they would say this you need more. It's not just Jesus. They kind of believed that Jesus was some kind of a minor figure. But the false teacher said more was needed. You needed new knowledge. And that was knowledge that would be given to you by one of the secret cults kind of things, the, the mystery cults of the time. And they would give you that special knowledge that you needed. Or you needed some kind of an ecstatic experience. And again, that was something they could bring you into and help you to experience and if, as you experienced whatever this was, then you had a deeper insight, or they would say, you know legalism, and in their case, it was asceticism, which is the whole idea of extreme self-denial living by yourself in the backside of nowhere, uh, going without food of extended periods of time, being totally alone without anybody around, and other things that they did, and they did this to demonstrate the, their sincerity, their purity uh, they believe that by obeying the rules, they were achieving whatever it was they wanted to achieve spiritually. And so the false teachers were pushing that stuff. And Paul comes on scene and he just starts to write and he answers questions and he says things and he never even says anything directly to them, but he just says the truth about Jesus. And all of a sudden you hear, you feel that all of a sudden he just took a hammer and, and, and smashed what they were trying to teach. Colossians 2, 9, and 10 we looked at last week. Let's just touch on it as we move into verses 11-15. 2.9 says, For the entire fullness of God's nature, or all the deity of God, dwells bodily in Christ. So there you go. He's fully God, fully man. They, they didn't believe that. And so here comes Paul and he says, The entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. And you have been filled by Him who is the head over every ruler and authority. So this is what he stated. All the fullness of God is there in Jesus. Uh, all the divine nature of God is there. His human nature is there. Perfectly put together in ways that we don't have ability to understand. And we, when we believe in Jesus and are, receive the salvation that He freely offers, we're filled with Him. We have that wonderful opportunity to be filled uh, with Christ because he is the head and the church is the body. So that's what he said in verse 9 and 10. Then 11 through 15, he begins to lay down a little bit more of that groundwork on a theological level. So let's jump into it. Verses 11 and 12, he's going to bring two words that we hear in the Old Testament. Uh, One is circumcision or circumcised, and the other one is baptism. And so He uses these two terms, but not in the way that you think he would. So let's jump in and take a look at it. In him, in Christ, you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ. And so he starts out here, and you get a sense right away, he's not talking about the Jewish circumcision that happened on the eighth day for every male child. That was a physical circumcision that was part of the covenant that they had with God. This is not that at all. He says, you, speaking to all of the church, were circumcised in putting off of the sinful nature. So there's that setting aside, or, or if you will, the, the, the killing the sinful nature. Um, not with circumcision done of hands, but with circumcision done by God. God's the one that does it. So this is a spiritual circumcision. This is a separation of the sin nature from us. And at that point, too, some other things happen. But, but that's the biggest thing that's going on here. The sinful nature um, is put to death because it dies with Christ. And the whole idea is that we are supposed to continue uh, living in Him. And so circumcision separates the sinful nature from us. And then he talks about baptism in verse 12. So the circumcision is done by Christ, not by human hands. It's done at the moment of conversion. And having been buried with Him in baptism and raised with Him through your faith in the power of God who raised Him from the dead. And so he goes on now to just talk about the whole idea of being buried with Him in baptism. Now again, this is not what he's not talking about, going down to the river and getting physically baptized. That's part of what we do as believers but in this case, this happens right at the moment of conversion. This is the baptism of the Holy Spirit that's spoken about in 1 Corinthians 12.1 where it says in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. And so in Him you were circumcised, this is the first section 12, having been buried with Him in baptism and, and the symbol of death is what that symbolism of baptism was and then raised with Him in, in, in coming out of the water was the symbol of being raised with Christ to new life. And so water baptism was a symbol of being put down. You you know, you die with Christ, and now you come up out of the water, and you are able to live a new life going on. all this happened spiritually, on a spiritual level. The spirit baptism is what he's talking about here. So there's a spiritual circumcision, and there's a spiritual baptism, both of which take place the minute you become a believer. You become a believer and you are placed into the body of Christ. And this is the process that it takes. It takes that spiritual circumcision being cut away from the sinful nature. It takes that spiritual baptism having the Spirit of God indwell us. And again, that's one of the reasons we go back to 1 Corinthians 12 because it makes it very clear. In one Spirit we were baptized into one body. And so that takes place at that moment of conversion. Now we do the water baptism as a recognition outwardly and as a testimony to show that that reality happened. We're baptized in water in order to show that I believe and I have had these things happen to me. I've been spiritually circumcised. I've been spiritually baptized. And now this water baptism is to tell the world that I belong to Jesus Christ, that I'm following Him in this step of obedience. Now, Romans 6, 4 kind of touches on this a little bit too. It says, for we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. And so that's just, a, again, one of those things that we look at and we think about. And Paul's given us kind of a, the theological basis for what is happening. Now there's an implication here. Paul told the Colossians that all the fullness of deity was in Christ Jesus. In other words, all of God was in Jesus Christ. All of God. He also said, we have been filled in Him. We have been given the ability to share in that fullness. He is the head and we are the body. So we are part of all of that that he was talking about in Colossians 2, 9 and 10. The Gospel of John kind of gives us a little bit of sense of this as well. He says, "The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth." And then in verse 16, "From fullness of His grace, we have all received one blessing after another." And I, I love the way he, John said this, and he said it very, very early. He said, you know, the Word became flesh. The Word became human. He he dwelled with us. and, And we saw His glory. We saw Him in an amazing way. And He is the One. He is the only One who has come from the Father. And how did He come? With judgment and anger and wrath. No, He came full of grace and full of truth. That's how Jesus came. And from that fullness, I love that verse 16, from the fullness of His grace we've all received blessings. And you can, he puts it one blessing after another. There's a the blessing of being able to be saved. There's a the blessing of being able to call God our Father. The blessing of knowing that Jesus Christ is at work. There's all kinds of blessings that come to us and, and many others as well. So very early in the Gospel, John has made it clear that the fullness of God and the grace of Christ are at work. And, and we receive, after, after being born again, we receive the blessings from the fullness of His grace. Later, James would say, every good and perfect gift comes from above. And so we share in Christ's fullness because He is in us and we are in Him. He is the head of the church and we are the body. And because of that, we share in the fullness of Christ. Paul says something in Galatians 2.20 that really kind of touched me this week as I was studying these things. He says, my old self has been crucified with Christ. Talk about being spiritually circumcised and having the old nature cut away. Paul says this way, my old self or my sin nature has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body tr- by trusting the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. And that's, that's the reality of Paul saying, hey, this is the mystery, the wonder of the Gospel is that Christ was crucified and our sin nature was also crucified with Him. I, I, my old self? Crucified with Christ. Crucified with Christ. It's not I who live, but Christ who's living in me that's what paul wanted us to get a hold of that amazing mystery of the gospel god has chosen to make this mystery clear the whole idea that it's christ in you and that's what he's talking about in the book of colossians he's trying to make that clear to the church in Colossae. and then we'll ask the passage in first corinthians paul restated the critical importance of the truth and, and you see this in Paul's writings in different places where he'll say, now, this is what we were taught. This is what has come down to us. And we're passing it on to you. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, he said, I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. So he said, listen, I've taught you exactly the most important things you needed to know. The same things that I was taught. And, and then he goes on to say, here they are. Christ died for our sins just as the Scripture said. He was buried, and He was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the Scriptures say. And so you got Paul making this very strong sense. That the essence of the Gospel is this. Christ died, was buried, was raised from the dead, and He now is in heaven interceding for us. And so we, we love and we honor and we serve not a dead Savior, but a risen Christ. And that's one of the things we always have to be coming back to. Let's move on to verse 13. And here Paul begins to kind of unfold even more of what he's been talking about. He said, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature. So here you go. He's going back a little bit to what he said before. Remember, spiritual circumcision takes care of the sin nature. And what he's saying here, you were dead before. Because that had not happened. You were still uncircumcised spiritually. You hadn't come to faith in Christ and had that take place. But when you were dead in your sins, in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. So when someone turns to Christ in faith and believes that He died on the cross for their sins, for my sins, and 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 that putting faith and trust in Him takes care of the, that, That's when the conversion takes place. That's when God saves us. And so he says, You were dead. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. What an incredible statement. Stop and think about that. Just a little bit. I'm not even going to ask, but how many of us have done something today that was somewhat sinful? Whether it was a thought or the way we spoke harshly to somebody. Go back to yesterday. I love the fact that He says He forgave us all our sins. What an incredible God. What an amazing thing. Stop and think about what He says when He says you're dead. That means there's no life at all. Dead and cut off from the land of the living. Dead is a description of the spiritual state that all humans are in until they believe on Jesus Christ. And then they are made alive. They they come into the whole idea of of being sons and daughters of God. And so, God made you alive with Christ. The power that raised Christ from the dead also lives and works in, in us. And believing sinners are, ter, have now spiritual life that they didn't have before. So without Christ, there's not a thing in the world we can do. But when we believe Him, and we accept the fact that He died offering us the gift of salvation, well, then He forgives all our sins. Then He goes on, talking about what happened there. He says, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. Now that having canceled the written code with its regulations is what was known in that time frame as a a certificate of debt. You owed something and so this contract was laid out with what you owed. Um, and so until that was taken care of, you were in debt to whoever that you, you had done that with. And we owed a debt, and that debt was for our own sins. And when Christ came and died in our place, the debt was paid to, so that when we believe on Jesus Christ, then that debt is not something we ever have to deal with again. The sins have been taken care of. Christ died for them. And so we have this certificate, certificate of debt and it was opposed to us. It was as if the law was saying, here's all of the things that Mark Kieft has done, and he's broken all of these things, and there's no way that they can be made better. And then Christ comes along and dies for my sins. I believe in Him, and they're gone. They're not there any longer. And so it says He took that certificate of death that was opposed to us, and He nailed it to the cross. I actually was going to bring a certificate of debt and pound it into the cross over there, but I'll let you uh, imagine that, just the whole visualization of that. That's a powerful thing. This is the quote that uh, encouraged me this week. God Himself paid the debt when His Son died on the cross. God upheld the holiness of His own law when Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sins. He also took it away by nailing it to the cross. When Jesus died, the condemning document was destroyed, and we are fully forgiven. Isn't that amazing. What a wondrous thing to know that we can stand clean before the Lord because of what Jesus has done for us. Verse 15, he goes on and he says And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, just kind of to fill in, if, if, uh, just so that we're all aware of the fact that what he's talking about here is when a Roman general went out and he won a big huge war or battle or something, he would come back and there'd be this big parade to celebrate what he had done. And all the prisoners would be stripped naked and in chains, marching behind. These are the spoils of war. These are the ones that were vanquished. And what is being given here as a picture is the fact that Christ is the one who is marching victoriously. And the way it's worded here, triumphing over them by the cross, is not what happened after the cross, but the cross itself was what vanquished Satan and his enemies. And Satan is still active and alive, but he's been he's been vanquished already. He already lost. And so Jesus won the decisive victory, making clear that all that all <clears throat> to all that Satan is vanquished. He has freedom to continue to live and do certain things, but those days are coming to an end. And then in the end times He will be thrown into the lake of fire. I have another quote that I thought was really good. On the cross, God stripped the powers and the authorities naked. He held them to a public contempt, held them up to public contempt, and led them in His own triumphant procession in Christ, the crucified Messiah absolutely love the thought of that, that this is this is our conquering king. And how did he conquer? By dying on the cross for each one of us. And what is the takeaway from all this? Ephesians chapter 2. Um, again, Paul writes about these things in different ways to many of the churches that he writes to. And he writes this in verse 1 of chapter 2 of Ephesians. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And anybody that is not a believer, when we were not believers, that's what we were, dead. We may be breathing and all of the other things, but spiritually, totally dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world. So it's what you did. That's what we all did when we were walking in the world, according to the ruler of the power of the air. And that's, uh, that's referring reference to Satan. And the Spirit now working in the disobedient. And so you were dead in your trespasses. You were dead in all of your sins. And all of us were before before we were in Christ. We were in our sins and we were dead. We were living like all the rest of the world. Living our lives under the ruler of the power of the air. That's, that's what Paul is saying here. You were dead. Verse 3. We too previously lived among them in our fleshly desires. He said, hey. I lived that way too, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature, by nature under wrath, as the others were also. So when you are in your sin and, and, and sin nature is all that's going on, and you have all of these desires and you're carrying them all out because it's you're making all the choices yourself. You there's nothing there, and he says. By nature, you're a child of wrath. Stop and think about what uh, John 3.18 said, how we are condemned already if we don't believe. The condemnation is already there. He's offering us a way out from under that condemnation by believing in Jesus Christ. And so we live carrying out all of the desires of the flesh, all the things that uh, our sin nature wants to do, and we are by very nature facing the wrath of God. Paul says in, chapter, in verse 3, Now we have the best verse of all, verse 4, but God. (laughs) I love the fact that you've got all this stuff talking about what we were and what happened and what happens to those who are still uh, in their sin. He said, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love that He had for us, made us alive with Christ. Even though we were dead in trespasses, and then he makes it really clear. You are saved by grace. Saved by grace. That should blow us away. I think sometimes when you grow up in the church like I did as a young kid, hearing it all the time, just come, yeah, 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 I've heard it before. And we don't let it really capture us. God, rich in mercy, great in love, made us alive. We were dead on our way to hell. And He changed us. And He saved us by His grace. Ah, that's incredible. This quote, I found this this week, I've heard it kind of before, but he paid a debt he did not owe because I owed a debt I could not pay. That's that awesome? He paid a debt. He didn't know. He didn't have to pay debt for his own sins. He didn't had no sin. But I had a debt I couldn't pay. nothing I could do. And so He paid my debt. He paid your debt so that we could receive the mercy and the grace of God. Psalm 103, one of those psalms that again just comes to mind regularly for me. We're saying, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse he will not he will harbor he will not har, excuse me he will not always accuse nor will he harbor his anger forever he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities talk about it, one of those amazing verses again what do i deserve it's thinking back on the things i've done in my lifetime I deserve to be punished. I deserve God's wrath. But He doesn't treat me that way because I've been saved by His grace and through His mercy. And so I deserve death. I deserve separation from God. But instead of that, I'm I'm offered His mercy and His grace and His love is poured out on me. Instead of His wrath being poured out, His love is poured out. And again, that's one of the things when you start thinking about it. Sometimes, like I said, we, we, we hear these things so often that maybe it doesn't have the impact it should. But this should make us just go, that's amazing, God. Look at what You've done. Thank You. I praise You and I worship You. Verse 11 and 12 says, As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His love for those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. Stop and think about that. How great is God's love? We'll start here and keep going up. You'll never run into the end of up. Just keep going through the whole universe. That's how big God's love is. For you and for me, that's God's love. And then you want to know about the mercy of God and, and the grace of God how far has He removed our transgressions? And of course, we, you hear this grown up. You know, well, the East never reaches the West. And, and so the sins are gone. They, they are not to be found anywhere. Yeah, there should be a lot of freedom in that for us. There should be a whole sense of, I am free from sin and death and, and I am no longer under God's wrath. That's a miracle. That's an amazing thing that He's done. Knowing that even though I remember, I remember some of my sins and failures and shameful things, God does not. God does not remember. He puts them away. And He can't, when I say, hey, God, remember that thing? No, He he can't remember. It's been forgiven and taken care of. He suffered on a cross... Took on himself all of the shame and the pain, all of the regrets. He paid for it all, forgiving and and giving forgiveness and grace as a result of all that, putting all those things forever out of his mind. I don't know about you, but I have a, a few things in my life that, yes, they've been forgiven. In many cases, I've even taken care of the situation with whoever I had sinned against. They're forgiven. But they come back, and I see them, and I hear them, and I feel the guilt and the shame. And the only thing I can do is to turn to Jesus and say, thank you. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for putting these things that I think about so far away that (laughs) you can't bring them to memory. And then I try to praise and thank Him for His mercy and grace and His love. And that's the only way to quiet sometimes those crazy things that come and haunt us maybe even. As far as the East is from the West, He's removed our transgressions from us. And then verse 13, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. And so the Lord knows we love Him, we serve Him, and He has compassion on us. He knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. And and I think what what I've always kind of thought about with that is that He knows I'm a mess. (laughs) He knows you're a mess too. But He knows that and He still loves me and He still died for me. He still pours out His grace and His mercy. And He knows who we are and how we were made and the things we struggle with and still chose us and forgave us. A song that came to mind as I was studying these things this week is, I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted You were condemned. I'm alive and well. Your Spirit is within me. Why? Because You died and rose again. Amazing love, how can it be that You, my King, should die for me? Amazing love, I know it's true. And it's my joy to honor You in all I do. I honor you. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy, your grace. Thank you that you saved us and you made us your children. Lord, thank you for that. Thank you that in all of the mess that we make of our lives, you're still there giving your mercy, giving your grace, giving your strength and pouring out your love on us. Lord, we know that as when we were still sinners and totally hopeless and lost forever, You you died for us. Thank You. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.